This is The Real Estate Rookie Show, episode number 59. I would say if you're buying your first home and you're going to own or occupy it, and I've got, I don't know, 50 grand, I'd rather put less down on the property and keep the rest available for that next investment. My name is Ashley Kerr, and I am here with Tony Robinson. Tony, what episode is this? 59er. Yeah. (laughs) Yay. Is everyone going to get sick of us doing that every episode that has a nine in it? What are you calling for a walkie-talkie? What are we going to do for episode 99? Like, that's going to be... Oh, my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to go back and watch the movie and pull what the actual number he's saying, like the cell phone number he's giving or the phone number he's giving and see how that correlates. But today, Tony and I are super fangirling, both of us, <laughs> as we have Mindy Jensen and Scott Trench on the show. Yeah. For those of you that don't know, like Scott and Mindy are obviously the face of Bigger Pockets, especially Mindy. Like even you know, when I first joined Bigger Pockets, it was Mindy's face all over the forums that you see, and she's responding to everything. So to have both of them on the podcast today was a really cool and, and exciting experience. But they came on to talk about their new book, which is all about first time home buying. And we go really deep into all the different steps that go along with making that happen, which I think you guys are going to get a lot of value from. Yeah, we're going to talk about inspections. We're going to talk about different kinds of loans, including the FHA. And we just go into what the process looks like for buying your first property. This can be your primary residence or this is applicable to an investment property. So uh, this book will actually be available March 8th on biggerpockets.com in the bookstore. Are current interest rates making you depressed about cash flow? What if it didn't have to be that way? Rent to Retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. That's a seller financed 2.99% interest rate where the average cash flow is over $900 per month. They also have options where you can put as low as 5% down on multiple investment properties with no PMI. Rent to Retirement is the nation's leading turnkey investment company that understands what it takes to be successful in today's dynamic real estate market. Their reputation speaks for itself with more five-star reviews than any other company on the Bigger Pockets website. Rent to Retirement offers fully turnkey properties that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed, allowing you to invest with confidence in the markets that offer the best returns. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's rent toretirement.com or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a deal machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. 
Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. All right, guys, we are super excited for today's episode. We have two really, really special guests joining us today. And honestly, this is like a surreal moment for me because I've followed these guys a long time before actually joining the show. So to be able to interview you guys is an absolute pleasure. But today we've got Scott and Mindy. Guys, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. This is a lot of fun. I'm excited to be on The Rookie Show. Yeah, thanks for having us. We love what you guys are doing. And thanks so much for joining us with BP and doing such a great job every week on The Rookie Show. Well, thank you, Scott. We appreciate that. <laughs> so Mindy and Scott are the hosts of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, and they do everything at Bigger Pockets. But why don't you guys dive in a little bit of why you guys are actually here today? You are going to talk to everyone about what? Yeah, well, we, Mindy and I have been working on a new book title called First Time Homebuyer. And we have a very creative naming convention with our book titles here at Bigger Pockets. So, First Time Homebuyer is uh, about getting your first home purchase. And we think it's just a really important topic because it's the largest financial decision that many people make in their lives. And I think it can really have tremendous consequences on a real estate investing career in particular. If you buy the big house in the hill, use up all your cash, and assume a big mortgage payment can be pretty difficult to get financing for that next rental property, let alone save up the cash for that down payment. So there's a spectrum of decisions around that. There's a spectrum of strategies to think about with your first time home purchase. And then um, a lot of tactics to help you get a good deal on that, that we think are really important to get you off the ground in your investing or wealth building journey. Yeah, I think it's important to note that this isn't just for, you know, someone buying their primary or buying their, you know, investment property. This is you could be doing a house hack your first property purchase ever. So for example, for me, I wish I would have had this book because when I married my husband, he already had a house and then we built a house. But when I actually went out and did my first transaction purchasing a property, it was an investment property, a duplex. And even though I owned two other houses with him, I had never gone through that process. And it was life-changing for me. Like, wait, I have to go get pre-approved? Like, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing here. So this is a great book for you guys to check out, but we really want to get into what it takes for a rookie investor to buy their first property. So Mindy, I want to ask you, in your experience right now, what is it like for a first-time buyer in the market with today's current market? Oh my goodness. Frankly, it's very frustrating right now for a buyer and first-time buyer or an experienced buyer. You are competing for one house with 1 million other people who want to buy that one house. So Everything is going right now, in my market at least, everything is going for over asking price. People are waiving the appraisal gap or agreeing to cover the appraisal gap. They're waiving inspection. They're bringing all cash. They're doing everything they can to sweeten the deal to the sellers so that they choose them over everybody else. And what that means to investors and especially first-time investors is that people are paying stupid money for properties. And it's very easy to get caught up in the hype. Oh, I found this great house. It's going to be so awesome. I'm going to put money on this house. Oh, oh, they want highest and best. Hmm, what do you think we should do? 50,000 over? Well, my numbers don't really work, but I have to have this house. You don't have to have that house. There's another house. And there might not be another house this week, 
but there's always another house. I'm a real estate agent in Colorado. We have a super, super hot market and I have a 100% success rate for getting all of my clients into a house. I'm writing a lot of offers right now. I'm getting so good at writing offers, but being super eager to get your first property can be a great way to pay too much for your first property. So my advice to rookies right now is run your numbers and make the offer that makes sense for you. And if you lose that property, it wasn't meant to be. Now, Mindy, that's really great advice. And one of the markets I invest in in the Smoky Mountains, we're seeing very similar kind of price run-ups in that market as well. And, you know, no appraisal gaps and things like that. You know, if I'm a first-time home buyer and I'm like kind of falling in love with all these properties that I'm seeing, how do I like mentally not go down that path? How do I stay motivated during that process to make sure that I have the courage to say no to this deal and know that another better deal will come later? It is really hard to keep losing out on all these deals. I mean, I have no skin in the game, really, when I'm writing up these offers. I'm your agent, but I'm not buying the house. I'm not going to move in with you. So I don't want to say it doesn't matter to me that you're losing the house. It does. But, you know, I wasn't going to live there anyway. It still is really difficult for me to keep writing these offers. And like, I get the phone call. Sorry, we went with somebody else again. And it can't be draining. But when you run your numbers and you know that making an offer at $127,000 is the absolute top that this property is going to make sense for you at, and then you see that it sold for $150,000, you made a smart decision by not chasing this property that isn't going to be the numbers that you want it to be. And like I said before, I have a 100% success rate. And I'm not saying that like, please call me to be your agent, but every agent has a 100% success rate eventually. And I think that the market will calm down. I think we've got COVID. We've got people who have to move. We've got people who don't want to put their house on the market because there's no place to move to. So right now there's this log jam of buyers and nobody's selling, but pretty soon people are going to be like, oh, you got 75,000 over asking. Oh, I'm going to put my house on the market. And I think the inventory will slowly come up and then it'll be more of a level-ish playing field. Yeah, I, I just want to chime in that I agree with all the things that Mindy said there. I have a couple of other observations about the market for folks to think about. One is the payment matters more than the price in real estate. And it matters more than the price for home buyers, and it matters more than the price for landlords. So all these rules, like the 1% rule and the 50% rule and all those kinds of things, they kind of go out the window when your financing costs go down. Because if my mortgage payment was $1,000 and interest rates drop and now it's $800, well, I can still afford a $1,000 payment and I'm just going to be able to buy a 20% more expensive house. So a lot of markets around the country are way overpriced if interest rates were at 5%. They might be underpriced still. And that's what we're seeing is some of that catch up in some of these markets at a 2.8% interest rate. So I think that that's the biggest lever to understand that's going on in the real estate market in a general sense. All the other levers still apply, supply, demand, those types of things. And we are seeing a shift of tenant demand. People don't want to live in apartment complexes or condos right now. They want to live in single family homes. Last year, we saw apartment rents fall. We saw single family home rents climb modestly. And we saw single family home prices skyrocket across the country. 
due to that kind of demand supply phenomena. We're not seeing a lot of supply items coming in. We're lots of new construction. We're seeing expensive labor, expensive materials, continue to have permitting issues in many cities around the country that constrain supply. And we're not really seeing a fundamental change in demand, except for that mix shift that I just kind of mentioned earlier, where people are moving away from multifamily and into places with yards where they can be alone, I guess. And maybe there's a COVID dynamic with that, but there's also a potential longer term demographic shift that's just being accelerated by COVID. So just want to chime in there with a couple of those thoughts on the market that explain some of what's going on. And I think bring some questions about whether we're really at the end of anything right now, or if uh, we're going to see a big step up in prices and then a flatlining. Be interesting to see. Now, I think something that's interesting is, yeah, there's so many unknowns in the market right now. Really, there always is, right? Like no one has the crystal ball. But I guess as you're going into purchasing that first home, uh, you should always kind of be thinking about the future, right? And five years down the road from now, what is my plan with this property? So Scott, I guess, you know, what's your take on exit strategies for your first home and how listeners should go about uh, handling that? No, you nailed it. That's the word is exit strategies. Most, I think most is too strong, but perhaps many perhaps most people buying their first home have one exit strategy in mind. It's called the buy and pray approach, and they buy the home and then they hope it goes up in value over time or that they live there forever. And that is not good financial and home buying planning. That's not the way to go about this. What you want to do is you want to think about like what's going to happen? What's the typical outcome for these properties? Am I really going to live in this city? I'm buying a house in 2021. Yes, it's a pandemic year, but going forward in the future that we have a highly mobile society, I could be moving in a different city to a different place. The average, I think, tenure in a home is five to seven years. The average time that a homeowner owns their home is somewhere between seven and 10 years. So understand that you're probably not going to be in this property forever. And the biggest kind of like loser for a homeowner is short tenure because you have these closing costs associated with buying and selling the property. So if I might pay one to two percent in buyer closing costs when I buy the property, I'll pay six, seven, eight percent in seller closing costs when I sell the property. That means that if I put down 30 grand on a three hundred thousand dollar property and I assume I'm gonna pay about 10% just in closing costs, all of that equity evaporates for the most part if you just buy a property and turn around and sell it tomorrow. You have to wait and allow time to do its thing and allow appreciation rates, inflation, and loan amortization to do their thing over a period of time for buying a home or owning a home to be profitable or better, even better than renting in a general sense. So the good news is you don't have to live in the property for a very long time, but you have to own the property for a long period of time. And that's where the exit options become into play. If you can live in the property happily for a very long period of time, that is a viable exit strategy. It's rare, and I think people overestimate that, their likelihood for this to be their forever home. But know that if you buy a house you're miserable in, you're actually making a financial mistake and eliminating one viable exit option. So you have to buy something that you're willing to hold or own or live in for a long period of time. The second exit option is to sell your property at a profit. So you can either do that by benefiting from market appreciation, buy and pray, or you can try to take control of some of that appreciation by improving the property to a certain extent, something that Mindy has really mastered personally. She's in, I think she's done like 150 live-in flips or something to that effect. The third exit option is to keep the property as a cash flowing rental, short-term or long-term. And if you just underwrite your deal at the initial stages, trying to maximize the optionality in those three areas, the more those options are true, the happier you are to live in the place forever, the more 
profit you can make by selling it in the shortest amount of time and the more cash flow you would generate from it as a rental, short or long term, the better off you're going to be and the more life optionality you're going to have and the faster you're going to be able to build wealth and achieve various forms of freedom. I think what Scott just said there can kind of cure a lot of analysis paralysis and those worst case scenario fears. So like if you haven't started yet, you haven't bought your first property because you are afraid of something bad happening. He just gave you a whole bunch of options, a bunch of exit strategies that you can put into your business plan so that if that worst case scenario does happen, okay, you use that exit strategy to get out of it. So thank you for sharing that, Scott. I want to kind of turn now to, so how do these rookies find a good deal so they don't have to use any of these exit strategies? In today's market and using all the different programs for first-time home buyers, what is something that our rookies should be looking for in a good deal? All right, so I've got one more two to three minute rant to answer that question. <laughs> so we outline a, a kind of like five part process to finding a good deal in the book. And this is for a first time home buyer, but it could apply to finding your first real estate deal as well. The first is an obvious one, but we'd be remiss to not state it, which is begin the process from a position of financial strength. A position of financial strength involves having income that can easily qualify you for the amount of the mortgage. It involves having a down payment. That down payment involves having a cash position, which is inclusive of your down payment, closing costs, anticipated repairs that you might make immediately after closing, and a ten dollars to $15,000 reserve. That might sound like a lot of money, and it is, but you don't need to put down 25% necessarily. You can put down 3.5% and still fulfill the requirements of that strong cash position. So that's item one. Item two is not compressing yourself into an artificial timeline to transact on a property. Don't be making the biggest financial decision of your life in a big old hurry on the first time you're doing this, right? And a good example of ways that people put themselves into this position where they are making a decision in a hurry is, for example, my lease, it's uh, May 1st, and my lease expires on August 31st, Therefore, I need to buy a home between now and then, and I need to go under contract on August 1st. You've just said, hey, I'm not willing to call my landlord and go month to month or live in a short-term rental for a period of time, and therefore, I'm going to rush a two, three, four, five dollars $500,000 financial decision and dramatically increase my odds of making a mistake to save a few hundred dollars. That, I think, is a, a non-starter, and I think you have to put yourself in a position where you can go fishing rather than going to the market to buy a fish, which is an analogy we used earlier. And I don't, I don't have a good parallel analogy for what's the opposite of going fishing and patiently looking for your bite, but that's best I can do. Okay. So that's the second step. The third step is to know what you want, right? And this sounds again, very basic, but for example, I should be able to put on a two paragraphs on a page in 30 seconds to two minutes. And this will take you a few hours to figure this out, but it's something like I want a three bed, two bath, home in Denver, Colorado in one of these four or five neighborhoods. I'm looking for a 1950s builder later. I want a two-car garage. I want this kind of yard. I want this school district. I want to make sure that, I don't know, I can list out a large number of details there. I'm looking for an updated kitchen. I'm looking for a place with value add potential. I'm looking for opportunity to add an additional dwelling unit in the outback. You got to list out all the criteria that you want and get on the same page with your spouse about those same items because this is your first time home or first investment property, you need to be able to do that. And you need to define that in crystal clear terms. And this is a step that people miss, I think. They're just kind of looking like, what's a good deal? Well, the good deal is a property at a good price that meets all of your criteria, right? And so that brings us to step four, which is actually determining what a good deal is 
in relation to your criteria, right? Cash flow would be an example. Rents and cash flow would be something that you would have an example of on a uh, investment property. And so how do you find a good deal? Well, what most people do is they look at the market and look at active listings. And they're like, oh my God, the only properties that are listed on the market right now are properties that are way too expensive, have been sitting there for months and have something horribly, horribly wrong with them. And this is a nightmare. I give up. No, you don't even begin your search with active listings. You look at the sold listings that have sold in the last 90 to 180 days and look for properties that meet your criteria. And there's a couple of possibilities that will happen when you look at this. And this is something you can do on Zillow. You could do it on realtor.com. You could do it with your agents. I think it's probably best to do it with your agent because you'll get potentially listings that don't make it onto some of those portals. But you say, okay, great. I want that property and nothing to that effect has sold in the last 90 to 180 days. Well, that tells you great news. You're living in fantasy land. And so you can just stop your search right now because what you're looking for does not exist. On the other end of the spectrum, it might be that there are hundreds and hundreds of properties that have sold that meet your criteria. In that case, you can begin narrowing and saying, no, I'm going to eliminate everything above this price and above that price and above that price. And when you whittle it down to something like, let's call it 10 properties in the last 180 days, that's when you know you've got a pretty good idea of what a good deal is in your market because that's a property. And that tells you another thing that says a good property is coming on and selling in your market on average, every 18 days. That's every two and a half weeks. So at the moment in time you're looking at the market, you're not likely to see that deal, but you know it exists because it's been selling in the last 180 days. And then the last step here is to then set yourself up to go fishing, right? And so now you say, okay, I know what a good deal looks like. I know what's realistic in my market. I've pre-done my analysis. And I know that barring a huge problem in inspection, like a roof that's about to collapse or a foundation problem that I'm going to have to spend 50 grand repairing, I would buy these 10 properties. I talked to my agent, I set up a drip campaign or feed. And when the property that meets my criteria comes on the market, I've already got my pre-approval ready to go with my lender. My agent and I have already discussed that we're going to offer it. And if it comes on the market at 2.30 in the afternoon, I may not be leaving work early, but I'm certainly canceling my evening plans to go and look at the property make sure that it passes the eyeball test with that kind of stuff. And it's something I do want. There's no gotchas that don't show up on the listing. And I'm making an offer that night that's competitive, firm, and fair, but I'm not chasing because I know there's going to be another one because I've done my research and know what good looks like ahead of time. Rant over. Scott, that was so much good information. And I've actually never heard the concept of looking at sold listings to validate what your expectations are of that market. I have so many friends now. I live in Southern California, which is a relatively expensive housing market. And I have friends that say, you know, I want a five bedroom, five bath on, you know, an acre with a pool. And I'm like, you're paying, you know, $5 million for that house, right? And they just don't have a good sense of reality. So going back and looking at the sold listings, I think does a really good job of that. Now, I think one follow-up question I want to ask, and, you know, Scott, many of this is for both of you. You hear a lot that people say, don't buy real estate today because the market's going to crash. And, you know, I'm hearing that today. I heard people saying that to me. I bought my house back in 2018. And, you know, I had family members telling me, yeah, maybe you guys should wait because the market's going to crash. We bought our house a little over two years ago, and we've gotten almost $100,000 in appreciation since then. They're building the exact same floor plans of my house that are selling for almost $100,000 more today, right? So had we waited, we'd be paying that much more for our house. So what's your advice to people who are looking for that first home in terms of, you know, waiting for this pending market crash or just going out and finding the right deal today? So there's this saying that goes, don't wait to buy real estate, buy real estate and wait. 
And I don't know who said that, somebody famous. But I have worked at Bigger Pockets since 2015. And I have been hearing that the market's about to crash, the market's about to crash since I started almost six years ago. So I get what they're saying because 2008 crash was so spectacular. I understand that you don't want to buy now and then you're underwater next month and you have to wait until the values come back up. But if you're buying specifically an investment property, this goes back to my first comment, run your numbers and make the offer at what makes sense to your numbers. Because hopefully your numbers have built in a little bit of a cushion for, you know, do I have to drop rent a bit? Or I'm making enough money that if I do have to drop rent, I'm not losing money on the property. And you make the offer on the property that makes sense based on a lot of different factors. You don't guess that you can get $800 a month for the rent. You go to do your research, go to BP Insights, go to Craigslist, go to, you know, wherever you're finding rentals right now and see what other properties like that are renting for. And if everybody is renting for $750, why do you think they're going to pay $800 for yours? Always run your numbers conservatively. And so I don't want the market to crash because that's mean to all the people that would lose a lot of money. But holy cow, I can't wait for it to crash so I can buy some properties. (laughs) But that's like, I'm not hoping for that. I would much rather be in this market where it's just insane than in a market like 2008, 2009. And with the the market thing, I was curious, you know, when I started investing in 2013, 2014, everyone was talking about how the market was overpriced and was going to crash. And that continued in 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, and it's continuing here today. So one of these days, they're, they're going to be right. And I actually wrote an article a while back, and I found headlines from every major business media outlet I could think of that in turn predicted formally, the housing crash coming within 12 to 18 months. The housing crash, according to the pundits, is always exactly 12 to 18 months away from the current state, regardless of where you are. So they could be right. The housing crash could be coming in the next 12 to 18 months, next six months or whatever. But I fundamentally believe that real estate is a good long-term asset for me to hold. And that if I buy consistently, but not aggressively, and conservatively capitalize, that's fancy talk for having reserves and you know underwriting for cash flow conservatively, the way that Mindy just described, that I am going to build wealth over time and no one deal, no one event can cripple my position. I'm always investing from a position of strength and again, building my portfolio over time. And I think that's the healthy approach. If this deal going bad or the market turning south right after you purchase your first property can ruin you, something's wrong and you're probably not ready to invest quite yet. And you need to continue working on fortifying the financial position and building up that framework. Each deal should accelerate and improve your financial position. None should be make or break it, in my opinion. To kind of add on to that for rookie investors, if you are analyzing a deal and ready to jump in and you are afraid that the market might crash, something I like to recommend is running your numbers three different ways. So you can use the bigger pockets calculator reports or whatever spreadsheet you use to analyze deals and you're going to run one as is. So as you're buying the property, what are the numbers right now? The second, you're going to run them as worst case scenario. What is the worst case that this can happen? What would the lowest the rents be if, you know, the market did crash? How much would rents go down? Run your numbers based on that. And then also run your numbers unexpected. So especially if you're doing a burr, what would you expect to be able to increase your rents to? What do you think the new mortgage payment would be? So I like to do it as is expected and worst case scenario. And that kind of gives you an overall idea of how your property can perform if there is a downturn. So like even worst case scenario, 
I would be happy if I broke even on a property because I don't expect that worst case scenario to happen. So at least everything is covered until the market starts coming back up. So that's just a little advice. I want to ask you guys a whole bunch of questions that we actually pulled from the Real Estate Rookie group. And if you guys aren't a member yet, make sure you guys go search Real Estate Rookie and join the group. We have over 20,000 people in there. And a lot of times we pull questions from you guys and we'll play them on the show. So we collected some of the questions from the group about buying a home for the first time. And we're just going to run through these and get the answers from the experts, Mindy and Scott. So, Tony, do you want to ask the first question there? Yeah, absolutely. So the first question here is agent referred lenders versus using a mortgage broker for conventional loans. What lending fees, closing costs should we be paying attention to or comparing? Oh, I'm going to take this one because I work with lenders all the time. Agent referred lenders versus using a mortgage broker. Yes. When you are searching for your first property, your first loan, you want to reach out and shop your rate around. What are all the rates? If your agent referred lender is coming in at 9% and everybody's at 2%, clearly you're not going to use them. But if they are coming in really close to competitive to what the other loans are coming in or the other lenders are coming in at, ask your agent, why did you refer this person to me? I think it's illegal for lenders to give kickbacks to agents. So I don't think they can do it for money. I have a lender that I use all the time. And the reason I refer him is because he's amazing. He does a super fast close. He's never missed a deadline for me. I've never had a deal fall apart because of him. And I can't say that about other lenders that I've used. So I have a great track record with him. When somebody asks me, why are you recommending him? It's because he's so awesome. I did 10 closings in November and December last year. Eight of them were with him and two of them were cash. He's just amazing. So ask your agent why they're recommending this person, because if they're really awesome, an extra 12th of an eighth of a quarter of a percent isn't going to be a big deal as opposed to losing the property because the lender dropped the ball. That works really well if you have a good agent. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm a good agent. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What lending fees and closing costs should you be paying to? Fees. Anything that says it's a fee, an underwriting fee, an application fee, an origination fee, a rate lock fee. Anything that's a fee is something that you should really look at and compare. If everybody's coming in at two and a quarter percent on the interest rate, what are all the fees? I mean, your fees can add up. Frankly, a rate lock fee. This is a family friendly show, so I'm not going to tell you my true thoughts about it, but I think it's garbage. If you have. Sorry, I want to pause on that really quickly because I think maybe many guests or listeners, I'm sorry, don't know what a rate lock is. So can you quickly clarify that for us? Like, what is a rate lock? How does it work? Oh, sure. Sure. So right now you're calling up all these different lenders. They're saying the rate that I can give you is two and a quarter. That's not locked in. The rates go up like this all the time. Right now they're going up, actually. But rates are going up and down all the time. And until you say, okay, lender, I'm going to go with you. I want to lock in my rate. Whatever the rate is, when you lock it in is your rate. So when they quoted you two and a quarter, that's basically for comparison purposes. When you go to get the loan, you don't want to lock in your rate now in case they go down. You don't want to lock in your rate until you have a property under contract. So it just, you didn't used to be able to lock in your rates. It was whatever it was on the day of closing and you could really screw up a real estate deal. My parents owned a house in Oregon for, I think, 30 years because their buyer couldn't lock in a rate. And this was, I'm dating myself, but this was in like 1980. The rate when they put the offer on the house was 14% and it moved up to 17%. 
you couldn't lock it in at 14, which was a steal at the time. Yeah, I know all you guys are babies. You don't know that rates used to be obscene. So yeah, that's what a rate lock is. You're just locking in the rate that they have quoted you. And it's got a deadline. So you lock it in for 30 or 60 days, whatever your closing period is. But if you miss that closing window, you actually have to pay to extend the lock or you just get whatever the new rate is. So sorry about that. Yeah, no, thank you for explaining that to us. So to move on to our next question, for rookies that want to buy their first home, should they use an FHA loan with a low down payment and then save the rest of their cash for a second investment property? Or should they put more money towards their down payment, say 20%, and then use the equity they have in their house to purchase their second property, their investment property? What would be your advice on this? Yeah. So I think Mindy's a little bit closer to the tactical reasons, maybe to use a FHA versus conventional, those types of things with this. But at the highest level, thinking about it strategically, I would say if you're buying your first home and you're going to own or occupy it, and I've got, I don't know, 50 grand, I'd rather put less down on the property and keep the rest available for that next investment as reserves, that's a stronger financial position than putting it all into the property, in my opinion, especially if my intent is to hold the property for a long period of time and recoup some of that. Now, the cost of that is going to be mortgage insurance in some form or other, where I'm going to have additional fees in relation to that low down payment. But I think that the strength of the position will be a little better if you have that option. For many first-time home buyers, it's even simpler than that, though. It's, okay, in order to put down 25%, I'm going to need 60 grand. That is not reasonable for me to accumulate within the next year, two, or three. Therefore, I'm going to put down three and a half percent, which is 10 grand, which is much more reasonable for me. I think that if you have the luxury of making that option, it's probably still better to use a lower down payment loan because it gives you more optionality downstream with the next investment and a stronger overall financial position. I'd rather have a $240,000 mortgage with 40 grand sitting in my bank account than a 270 mortgage with 10. I just think one is the, a lower risk position, especially with a 30-year fixed term. But then I think that there's nuances around FHA versus conventional that are also part of this question. Maybe, Mindy, you could have more help on the on the specifics of that. I'm glad you mentioned that, Scott, because in the Bigger Pockets forums and in the Facebook groups, the 3.5% down FHA loan is put up on this pedestal. But what happens is people don't realize you have to pay private mortgage insurance called MIP, Mortgage Insurance Premium, on an FHA loan for as long as you have that loan. You have to either pay off the loan or refinance out of that loan into a different loan in order to get rid of that. Whereas with the conventional loan, you have private mortgage insurance, PMI, until you reach the point where you've paid down 20% of the purchase price, you can then request that they take it off. Or when it gets to the point where you've paid 22% down, they have to take it off. And that is a better choice. You don't have the refinance fees. I just said we had 14 and 17% mortgage rates in the 80s. We've got two and a quarter, 3% mortgage rates right now. I said it when it was at three and a half percent. You're never going to get cheaper money. Honestly, if you can get cheaper money than this, then you have won the lottery. But if you can at all get a conventional loan, get a conventional loan because then you have the option to remove it. I do agree with Scott that you should have a healthy reserve fund back around March of 2020. I think the government shut America down March 13th. And that whole weekend, I was seeing people in the Bigger Pockets forum saying, How am I going to pay my April mortgage payment? 
You don't have reserves for your April mortgage payment? It's already March 13th. That should be in the bank along with May and June. So you need reserves. You can't predict a global pandemic. There's probably not going to be one next year, but I'm not a scientist. I don't know. Not having reserves is so detrimental to your wealth building future. So I would say get in for what you feel comfortable with as a down payment while also having a healthy reserve fund. Yeah. And one other thing to chime in on the FHA versus conventional. In addition to the advantages of the PMI, my understanding is that the FHA appraiser can be a real stickler and that this causes sellers to not like offers with FHA loans that are contingent on those. That appraisal, if it doesn't come in, I think there's rules that allow the buyer to back out. It's kind of like you can't waive those types of things. And so all else equal, it appears to me that in the current time period that a bias towards low down payment conventional, three and a half percent down conventional loan would be a superior alternative to the FHA loan in many cases. There's probably many exceptions to that, but that's the way it seems to me from 30,000 feet here. To kind of give an example on that, when my sister purchased her house with an FHA, the inspector went through and like she had to put in new hand railings on the stairwell and just like nitpick different things, had to do touch up pain in one area. All these little things that actually do like add up and then you have to go back to the seller. Well, are they going to take care of that or you as the buyer have to take care of that? So just to kind of give an example of the hoops you have to jump through when you get an FHA loan. I might not put up with that as a seller. In this market, sellers aren't. If they've got more than one offer and one of them is a conventional loan, they're going to go with that person over the FHA. I had a listing in October. Our closing was delayed three times because of the FHA appraiser. And we use the word appraiser. I think it's almost a misnomer because it's also an inspection. They're not just appraising the property. They're inspecting for little things. And we had an outlet, a GFCI outlet that had been tripped. And we pushed the button. It's right there on the outlet. You push it and it now works. We plugged in a lamp. We turned it on like a videotape, turned it on, turned it off. They said, no, you need to have an electrician come out and certify that that outlet works. I'm like, where am I going to find an electrician to come out and certify one stupid outlet? I mean, it's really can be nitpicky. And so as a listing agent, I don't love your FHA loans. Can I say that? I'm not breaking any rules, am I? Probably not. Who cares? <laughs> the FHA appraiser, where we mean the FHA stickler. If only, <laughs> this is overwhelming, right? There's like, this is just on the loans piece. If only somebody wrote a book outlining all of this stuff <laughs> so that we could be familiar with all that, that, you know, ah, oh, geez. Okay. Boy, Scott, somebody really should sit <laughs> Sorry, down and write a book self-promotion right for there. the first time homebuyer. Yeah. Well, one thing I want to add as well, right, because there's there's a lot of different ways you can kind of play the loan type or the down payment. I've met some investors who go the conventional route and they put 20% down or sometimes even more. And that's like the majority of their cash that they have available. But then they use a HELOC to then go out and use that to fund their real estate investing. So I have a friend he's done now, gosh, I think eight or nine burrs in Huntsville, Alabama by going with that method. He and his wife saved up a bunch of money. They put a big down payment on a house here in Southern California, got immediate equity, and they use that to go out and fund their real estate investing. So there's some other options uh, if you want to go down that path as well. I love that. And just this is a side tangent, but on the bird topic, I really think it's a mistake to use a HELOC to finance a long-term rental. I also think it's a huge mistake to use private money or hard money to finance a burr when you could use a HELOC. A HELOC is a way better alternative for cash and getting into those types of deals. 
but you always want to make sure you're refinancing at the end of that when you plan to hold the property with a long-term note. And here's why. A HELOC, I think you should think of it as a five-year loan. I think you should think of it as like a, hey, if I got a $50,000 HELOC or 60,000, you guys are all laughing at me for something like this. But if, if I got a $60,000 HELOC, that means that if I want to pay it back over five years, it's $1,000 a month, right? If that's my down payment on a rental property, that can really deplete my cash flow in addition to all the interest that I'm going to be paying on it. The way you describe it, Tony, is perfect. That's how you generate a lot of wealth. And you know the cool kids are all talking about private money and hard money, but a HELOC is a way better source than private money or hard money because it's so much lower interest. But it's not a good long-term financing option, in my opinion. For that, it's refinancing a 30-year note or something like that. So I have a really quick note about the HELOC. It is absolutely a great option when it's available. I had a house, oh, I think it was 2003. I bought a house. I took out a HELOC and we weren't even in 2006 yet. And the bank called me up and said, you can keep all the money that you've taken out of your HELOC. You can continue to make your payments or whatever. You can't take any more. We've closed your HELOC. So there's no more money available to you, but you don't have to like rapid pay off what you've already got. You can continue to make your payments. And I was like, well, why? I didn't lose my job. The market hasn't changed. Why would you cancel this? They said, we're just canceling some HELOCs. I mean, it's been like, I don't know, 20 years. I can't remember exactly why, but it was just so strange that they had canceled it when I had never missed a payment. Like I didn't even have all the money out of it that I could have had out of it. So I would say it's a great option, but know that it can be shut down on kind of the bank's whim. So it's not a guarantee, but yeah, it's a great option. And again, there's exceptions to all those rules. In a general sense, I probably was too strong with my wording earlier, but in a general sense, think about it as more of like a short-term debt. It's probably not as good of a tool for a down payment. It's a really good tool for a rehab where you're gonna refinance and pull that cash back out and then pay off the short-term debt, the HELOC. Yeah, we see a lot of folks do that. So I want to jump into the next question here. So the next question is, does your agent need to be able to find off-market deals for you as well as what's on the MLS? Or are you, the home buyer, supposed to work to find the off-market deals? So in general, let's be realistic. Most people buying their first primary residence aren't doing this off-market. So that's the short answer. The longer answer is that regardless of whether you're buying on or off market, you need to know what you want and know what a good deal looks like, right? And so you get there by doing what we talked about earlier, the process to determine what a good deal looks like and what's realistic. From there, it doesn't really matter if you get it on or off market. And I think off market can give you access to more opportunity and potentially a better deal. But I know that in some markets, there's some skepticism about whether off market is really truly that much different than on market and whether there's not more problems maybe being masked in that off market category. Like in Denver, are you really getting a better deal if you go off market right now? Everybody knows that if they go on market and sell at a reasonable price, they're going to sell quickly and for top dollar. So is that is that a reality? So I, I think that that's the question to be asking. And I think every all the deals should be flowing through your local MLS. So it's not like you're missing off-market deals if you just do the study and look at sold listings that we discussed earlier. So I don't know if that's a helpful answer, but that's what I got for that one. I want to tag on to this because I am an agent and I also have a full-time job at Bigger Pockets. I don't really have time to be out there looking for off-market deals. There are other agents who are full-time agents. They All they do is real estate all day long and they can have access to off-market deals. If your agent has an off-market deal, are they going to send it to you, the rookie who's done one or zero deals? 
Or are they going to send it to Tony, who has bought 57 houses from them last week? Um, I think that expecting your agent to do all the work is not a realistic expectation. I think you should absolutely be prepared to do the work. I mean, your agent doesn't know exactly what is going to make your heart sing as much as you do. So I do think that you need to be able to do the work. And it's just a bonus when your agent can find you an off-market deal. But to expect them to just sit there and pump off-market deals to you, I think is unrealistic. Mindy, the second part of that question was if you can dig into other types of loans besides FHA and conventional, like home ready, home possible loans, USDA. Do you have any experience with that? I really don't myself. I love this question. I'm super excited about this question. So the USDA loan is based on geography. And you can, I think you just Google USDA loan map and it'll take you to the website. Sorry, Mindy, is this like USDA the same like beef, like livestock that you buy? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. (laughs) But different. So they want to make rural investing a thing. The thing is the government, I don't know if any of you have experience with the government, they're not at the leading edge of technology and their map lags. I have a friend who I helped buy a house two years ago In the Denver market, to the west is the mountains, to the east is nothing. So everybody's building east. And she was able to use a 0% down USDA loan in a neighborhood that is not rural. But according to the USDA map, it was rural. So she was able to use this loan. So I say, if you want to get a 0% down loan and you're still well-funded and have a reserve, Look into the USDA map and see where those loans are applicable near you or in whatever market you're in. They can be really awesome to get in at 0%. However, that does not mean that you can have no money in your bank account and still buy a house because there are things that need to be repaired. Home Ready and Home Possible are programs for lower income families. So there is an income limit. They don't have a hard number. It's like 80% of your median income in your area or something. So it's all different. But they go down to a 620 credit score. FHA goes down to 580. So that might be a different option for you. But this one has a 3% down payment minimum, whereas FHA is 3.5%. And FHA, they require your down payment to come from you. And the Home Possible and Home Ready loans, you can borrow that down payment or have it gifted to you 100%, which is a nice thing if you have rich parents or if your boss wants to give you a house. Hey, or nice sisters. I gifted my sister her down payment. Don't exclude siblings. (laughs) Or nice sisters. Yes, nice sisters. Hey, sis, you want to gift me some uh, down payment money? Yeah, but she had to make me 50% owner of the property. So I feel like in the end, I won. (laughs) Ah. Yeah. Okay. Any other things you wanted to add onto that before I cut you off? I do want to say that if you don't have the money for a down payment, how are you going to fix things if they break? So I really just see a lot of people in the groups that are saying things like, oh, I want to buy with no money. And Brandon Turner wrote a book, the book on investing with no and low money down. And it's no and low of your money down. Uh, But he couldn't fit that in the headlines. So he cut that part out. You have to have money to buy a house. You need to have money in a reserve fund just in case. Yeah, I think it can be really smart to buy with no and low money down, but it's not smart to buy with no and low money down when your financial position is very weak. And that's the reason you're buying with no and low money down. I think that's the big caveat for that. 
Yeah, you want to have strong personal foundations, and that's why you need to listen to the Bigger Pockets Money Show if you need to get your finances in order before you start investing. But we did mention this a little bit ago, and I wanted to bring it up, so I'm glad you guys brought up reserves again. But this is not only important for your investment property to have reserves. Like You should have reserves for your primary residence, too. So make sure that all those bases are covered. This isn't just for investing that you need to have those reserves in case you know, your tenant doesn't pay rent. But if you lose your job, you need to have those reserves too on the personal side for your primary. In real estate, we call it, as investors, we call it capital expenditures. Home buyers who are unprepared call them disasters. So that's how motivated sellers come about is because of those types of things and lack of financial preparation. So our next question from the Facebook group is, I have applied for a loan and have not received an answer and feel like they haven't done anything but jerk me around. Is it going to penalize me to apply through somebody else? And will this affect my credit? So that was one of the questions we received in the the Facebook group. And I think that's a great question. Like, how do you shop loans and having your credit run so many times? Do you guys want to explain that for us, please? Yeah. So you are considered shopping the rate when you apply to... 200 different lenders within a 30-day window. The bank, the credit score people, the government doesn't think that you're trying to get 200 loans. They think you're just shopping a rate. So I would say apply to everybody. And in this specific situation, I would say make sure you red flag that person and never apply to them again, but go out to other people and apply within a 30-day window. I like to do it in a week just to be super tight. Then I'm not comparing rates from January 15th to rates from February 15th. I'm doing it all right in a real tight timeline. But yeah, if this guy is not getting it done, find somebody who will. And there are lots of lenders out there. Yes, lending is taking longer. Yes, refinances are taking longer, but they're still happening all the time. So this person is a jerk and you need to kick them to the curb and find a good lender. And I just want to add to your point, Mindy, about doing them all in the same week. You're basically giving the bank the same information. So you might as well just populate that email, send it to one, send it to the next, send it to another one. Like while you have it all together, go ahead and send it because even if you wait one more week, the next lender is going to want that next week pay stub and you have to gather that information. So I love that idea of just getting it in, giving yourself a week window and reaching out to those banks. That's a good point. And for this person, maybe it's 30 days now past when they asked that question. Let's not overthink it. It's probably not that big a deal to just go and restart the process, even if it is twice in two different 30-day periods. Just do your next one, shop around, and you'll have two inquiries. It's not going to like devastate your credit position or your credit score. If you're right on a bubble that you think is really important, like, I don't know, 640 versus 650, where there can be some cutoffs and some of these types of things with interest rates, maybe that makes a difference. But in general, it's going to be only like a few points that are going to be hit temporarily for the credit inquiries. In most cases, just go ahead and start the process again. But this time, just do five, six lenders at once in that 30-day window. So you're not worrying about the multiple inquiries again. And vary the type of people that you're talking to. You want to talk to credit unions. You want to talk to local banks. You want to talk to big chains. You want to talk to mortgage brokers. I had a go-to lender for like 11 years and he was a mortgage broker out of Kansas City. I don't remember which Kansas City, doesn't matter. I've never lived there, but he was licensed in all 50 states and he had great rates. All right. So for the next question, I want to talk a little bit about the Zillow's estimate and, and Redfin property evaluations, because I know this comes up a lot for first-time home buyers as well. So this question is, I have my first property under contract as of last week. We are purchasing the house for below the Zillow and Redfin estimates. 
When the bank does the appraisal, do we have access to that information to better understand the equity we will have in the house? Or do we need to have an appraisal of our own to better gauge this? The value of the property will determine our next moves. Okay, you are paying for the appraisal. It belongs to you. They will give you all that information. And it's like a 10-page report. I want to make a note about appraisals because it used to be that you could just say, oh, I want Bob Jones to be my appraiser. And then Bob Jones would come out and lo and behold, the $657,000 actual house is worth seven fifty, dollars according to Bob Jones. And that's how 2008 kind of started to crumble because appraisers were not being totally forthcoming. So they have changed the laws. And now you can't say, I want Bob Jones. You have to say, hey, lender, I want an appraisal for a lender. If you just want to go out and get your own appraisal, you can hire anybody you want. But if you want for the purposes of getting a mortgage, you say to the lender, okay, go get the appraisal. The lender reaches out to an appraisal management company and says, hey, I have an appraisal in this state. And the appraisers grab it and go do the appraisal. So the bank actually can't talk to the actual appraiser. They can only talk to the appraisal management company. However, since you have paid for that appraisal, it is yours and you should get all the information from it. And if you don't, I would pitch a fit with the bank. One follow-up question to that. What are your guys' thoughts on like the Zillow's estimates and you know the Redfin property values? Are those reliable numbers? Should I be using those to kind of gauge my buying decisions or is there a better way to do it? I'll quote an anonymous source here who has a little joke that says uh, the A in, in this estimate or the A in Zillow stands for accurate. That's a fun tease. I think this estimate is fine, but I don't think that it is wise. And I don't think Zillow would say this either to use that estimate as a reflection of the value of the property. It's an estimate. It's based on an algorithm and it's only as good as the data in that neighborhood and the comps that are available to support it and the data that's available with that property. So the value of the property sells for can be dramatically different from this estimate or the, the Redfin estimate. And I would not base your investing decision on those estimates at all. And there can be huge inefficiencies from time to time. I know that many agents are not pleased with those estimates because they can throw off expectations for some folks. I have an example for you guys. I actually just pulled it up to check that it was the same, but I get an email from Zillow for a property that I had purchased in 2018. I bought it for $17,500. And I, over the years, I've probably put maybe 15000 into it. It's maybe worth 40000 now. And the, the estimate on it is $111,414. How I wish that was true. <laughs> so somebody buys that for 100000 from you, they're getting robbed, yet they're thinking they're getting a good deal if they're using Zestimate. So that, that's the right, caution. Exactly. Right, oh, that. so now you just so. gave away my sales strategy. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And I, I guess, sorry, one other thing to add to you, right, is that even like appraisals themselves aren't always super accurate. Accurate, right? Like the first property that I purchased, it appraised for $230,000. When I actually went to go sell that property, I think I sold it for 2010, maybe a little less after some seller credits. So, you know, even the appraisal sometimes can be off from what you can actually get when you put that property on the market. I love this discussion with this because I own duplexes and quadplexes in Denver, and they're just not selling at a frequent level. There's just not a lot of the stuff that I, I like to buy out here. And so that can create huge inefficiencies because if there's only like six comps on the property in the last 180 days, and they have a big spread between them, they have a really inefficient market and nobody has good data points on what things are actually worth. And that can be to your advantage 
as an investor because it would allow you to, to get a really good deal, or it could be a dangerous game where you can be way off and have a lot of trouble selling downstream. So there's advantages and disadvantages. Perfect information means you're probably not going to get a smoking deal and create a lot of equity. Lousy information creates a lot more risk, but also opportunity. Yeah. And I want to give some advice to rookies on the appraisal process, like do some of your own research too. So if you've had an appraisal done before and you're looking at purchasing another property and trying to figure out what that after repair value is at ARV, look at the template that is provided in the uh, the appraisal report and look at how the appraiser actually determines the value of your property because it will show you your property, comp one, comp two, comp three, and just kind of look at how they're analyzing it. And you can even build your own spreadsheet to look like that and to plug into the numbers. And then when you meet your appraiser, I've heard different stories on this, but some appraisers will actually accept information from you. Some will want nothing to do with you, won't even want to talk to you. They just want to go and do their work. But some will take a list of all of the repairs and the expenses you you know put into the property, any capital improvements you did on the property. And then if you have any of your own comps, like a lot of times, like myself, I invest in the same town. So I have appraisals from properties that are right down the street. I will actually give those to the appraiser and say, hey, just, you know, this is the appraisal. This could be a comp from down the street. So just giving as much information as you can that will really help boost your appraisal is at least a tactic to try. They might not accept it, but there's no harm in getting that information together. So, Yeah, you're doing a good bit of this work. If you buy into what I talked about earlier, where you do it, looking at the sold listings first, having to find what you want, you're doing a good bit of the appraisal work, at least that which you can do without actually touring the property and inspecting it, looking at all of the systems and those types of things prior to this by looking at sold comps, because that's like the 80-20 of what the appraiser is going to do and looking at comps anyways to, to come up with that value. So ideally, if you've done your homework and are really kind of clear on this, you shouldn't be surprised by the appraisal. doesn't mean it won't happen, but it's just, well, I think lessen the odds of that being a nasty shock, good or bad. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right, get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do-not-call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my 9-to-5 job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. 
Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Rookies, 2024 is the year to start protecting your rental properties with an LLC. But you don't have to do all the paperwork and filing yourself. Corporate Direct is your professional and affordable option for getting your LLC done right. They handle the state filings, draft your operating agreement, and act as your registered agent. They'll even help you comply with the Corporate Transparency Act, a new federal disclosure law affecting every real estate investor. Corporate Direct is a family business founded by attorney, author, and rich dad advisor Garrett Sutton over 35 years ago. Now, his son Ted is a licensed attorney working with him. Together, they've helped thousands of real estate investors form and maintain their LLCs and protect their assets. If you're trying to build a real estate portfolio, do not skip the LLC. Head over to corporatedirect.com slash biggerpockets to schedule a free 15-minute consultation with an incorporating specialist. Mention Real Estate Rookie and get a $100 discount on your formation. That's corporatedirect.com slash biggerpockets. Whether you need to buy or sell or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like, so you can find the home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours, even the same day, with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards what matters most to you, like your next home. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. Tony, do you want to go ahead and take us through our last question or do you want me? I guess I got one that I think might be good. This last question we got for you guys is in what situation would you consider buying an as-is property? What are the biggest red flags to look for before putting in an offer? Okay. And as-is property is every single property on the planet. It is always as is, but that does not mean that you can't do an inspection. It actually does mean you can't ask for repairs, but you can ask for a price reduction. If you go in and you buy a property that says as is, and you walk through and you're like, oh, look at that. It needs a new roof. It needs a new furnace. It needs a new air conditioner. You can ask them, hey, based on my inspection, I need to reduce the price to $50,000 for all the things that are wrong. I didn't know all these things were wrong. If you're going to take the property and gut it to the studs and add a second story and do all these things, then an as-is property doesn't really matter all that much. I am wondering why it's as-is. And just because they say as-is does not absolve them from disclosing material defects. And I believe it's every single state, but I'm not sure. But you as the seller, you have the obligation to disclose any material defects known or things that you should have known, which I think is kind of ambiguous. But if you know that the roof is bad, you have to disclose that. If you know that your last tenant cooked meth in the house, you have to disclose that. 
And not disclosing that can be a real problem down the road for you. So an as-is property is not scary, but you need to be extra diligent in your inspection. And I would absolutely never waive an inspection on a property that I was buying. I've been buying and selling houses since 1996, and I get an inspection on every property I buy, except that one. So I would say that if you are a rookie, you absolutely need to have an inspection on the property. And if they won't let you inspect it, what are they hiding? I agree. The inspection and the ability to object in some capacity, I think, is critical for you on your first time home purchase, especially, and your first investment as a rookie with that. Where it can be appropriate to completely waive the inspection is if I'm a developer and I'm going to buy a property and my intention is to demolish it regardless of of the circumstances, then I don't really care. I'm buying it for the land value and it doesn't really matter. So you better, you got to be careful because that might be who you're competing with on an offer. And that might be why they're giving an as-is offer with that. When I offer at this point in my career, I kind of look at things like, okay, if I go into this place and I walk in and the window's broken, or I can place a marble on the floor and it immediately begins gaining traction going off to the floor with the huge slant. And then I'm shocked by the foundation report and the inspection, you know, or the fact that the window's broken and I'm objecting to that. That's on me. Those are obvious things that even not, not as an inspector, I should be able to just like pick up or look through with my agent on a walkthrough. But if I'm looking at a property that looks really fine on the outside, but there's a leak on the roof and it just hasn't rained in a few weeks and that's discovered, or there's a uh, big foundation issue that's just not apparent from the outside or from things you can look at, or I go in and I say, hey, I I can see that the marble's rolling. If the house is about to collapse, I'm backing out, guy. That comes up in the inspection. So I kind of look at it like, hey, I'm not going to ask for the outlet switch to be covered, to be placed on this thing in inspection. But I am going to look for high ticket items like uh, health and safety issues or very expensive things. And I, would e- I wouldn't even put the water heater in there. If the water heater in this kind of market is too old, I'm buying properties that are two to $400,000. The water heater is an $800 item, right? I'm not going to maybe $1,500 reinstallation. That's not an item for inspection for me to object to. The big systems, electrical systems, roof, foundation, major remodels that would be required to make the place habitable or rentable. Those are items that I would be looking to object to in the inspection report. And those are things to kind of think about with that and consider making it clear you won't object to minor issues in there. But otherwise, like this is the biggest financial decision of your life. If you're a rookie or first time home buyer, you can't assume the risk that a seasoned investor or developer would be willing to assume with the true as is, I'm not going to object to anything in my opinion. Yeah, I wrote an article 100 years ago called Your 48-Point DIY Home Inspection Checklist, and we can include that in the show notes. And it's just, this is something you should take with you when you're looking at a house. This is not a replacement for hiring an actual licensed home inspector. This is something you do before you make the offer. You go through, because you can walk in and be like, wow, this is such a great house, and forget that the windows don't open. My husband's grandmother caulked all the windows shut in her house once she got air conditioning. She opened them up, put a bead of caulk around the windows and closed them up and not one window opened. Do you think to check to make sure every single window opens? Maybe, maybe not. If you're a rookie, you probably lived in a house that had windows that opened all the time. It would never occur to you that somebody would caulk the windows shut. So, end rant. So this is just a really quick, walk through the house and go through this inspection. And then you place the offer, you get the home under contract, and then you hire an inspector for every house, even if they say they're as is. 
to add on to that, once, like my first couple properties were all, I did inspections on them. But then after I had like a knowledgeable contractor that I liked, me and him would actually go through the properties and I would use the binder that I had gotten from the previous inspector on a property. And I would use that as a template. Okay, we have to check this. We have to check this. We have to check this. And he would have like the equipment to, you know, make sure the GFI was working, stuff like that. And that's how I eventually kind of got away from inspections and just buying properties that are so bad that you just know you're going to have to do a full rehab anyways. So there's no That's point in inspection. Great, That's because you're a pro at this and have your systems in place and you are doing an inspection. You're just the inspector now alongside your contractor. And now you can write that into the offer and say, this is what I'm going to offer because I know exactly how much my rehab costs are going to be. That's awesome and really advanced. I don't know. I Yeah, I think that's fantastic. Yeah, getting rid of that contingency can be a huge benefit. But just as like you guys said, as a rookie investor, like don't take that risk, pay that money for the inspector. So a couple of years when I helped my sister buy her first house hack, since she was living in the property and this was going to be her first investment, we still did the inspection. Even though I hadn't been doing inspections on my own investment properties, we still did it so she could see the whole process. And she trusted the inspector more than me too, probably. <laughs> Yeah. And I do this with my, I have a go-to home inspector. He's amazing. He's got, I think, 180 points that he checks. And I walk through his home inspections and he's like, oh, look at that. Look at that. Look at that. So now when we're walking through the home before we've even put it on the market, I can say, oh, my home inspector is going to flag this. He's going to flag this. He's going to flag this because I am not licensed and it's not a home that I'm buying. So I can't act in that capacity. I'm not licensed as a home inspector, but I can certainly use that same template that he's got and be like, hey, hey, see that? That is terrible. And that helps people when they're looking at houses. Oh, there's a lot of stuff here. I don't want to deal with then. Or I don't care. Let's still make an offer. So it's really helpful to just be able to be well-versed in that. But like Scott said, you are doing an inspection. It's just you that is the inspector, which I love. And I think you just saying that, like having a realtor that knows how to read an inspection report is so valuable too, because you can look at it and you can be scared like, oh my gosh, this is a big deal where you would know, like, actually, that's just, you know, a $50 cost. Like, I know a guy who can do that. Like, that's not a big deal. Yeah, the inspector will terrify you on your first purchase because it's like a 50 page report of all the things that are wrong with your property. And it's like moderate risk. What, what does moderate mean? Does moderate mean 5000 Twenty dollars. I don't have to do anything. He's just noting that that there that this is like I, I don't know. And so that's where I think that good agent can really come into play and help out. They can't tell you no, it's not a big deal or not, but they can kind of guide you through what to worry about and what not to worry about. And we also have a third of the book. If only someone wrote a book about this uh, devoted to <laughs> describing some of the common things that can terrify people in these inspection reports. And Scott, one of the things that my partners and I are doing, especially for our stuff that's out of state is we'll send our handyman or our contractor to the property on the day that the inspection is being done so that as the inspector is like pointing out all these things, our handyman is putting together what his repair estimates are. And then we submit that to the seller, like after we finish our due diligence to say, hey, we need a reduction of this much. So I think we just like on our last property, we saved like almost $10,000 by following that process. I love this. And I have a question here for both of you guys, because both of you guys have a similar approach where you bring your professional to the inspection so you can get the bids out in real time. If I'm a first time home buyer or investor and I want someone to do that for me, 
I believe that a good contractor is going to size me up and think that I am a huge risk of somebody just looking for free consulting who's not going to pull through that. How would I potentially put myself in a position to have a chance for that contractor to come along with me who's actually quality for that and convince them? It's actually pretty easy. You just pay them. You offer to say how much is an hour or two hours of your time worth. Even it's a a hundred bucks or whatever. It's better to get that estimate up front and to know it than to wait until you've already got the deal, then have them come through when they know you've got the property and own it and they have more of a chance of getting the deal and where the estimate can be way higher than you expected. It's worth to spend that little bit of money up front having them come along. So like, you know, anytime a contractor comes with me, I am paying them for their time. Easy, obvious answer that never occurred to me. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I have one more comment and I we didn't really cover this, but if you are buying a house and you are paying an inspector to go through the house, you should be there with the inspector so that he or she can walk you through the property and tell you all the things they found. Because while they're in the property, they remember that the Fliberty gibbet on the top of the water heater is twisted funny. When they walk out the door, all their information leaves their head. They see so many houses, they're not going to remember some weird little thing in two weeks when you call them up. So be there and walk through it. And when they say, this thing is at the end of its life, hey, let's look at that. Why do you think that's at the end of its life? How much does it cost to repair? Sometimes it's a $10 fix and sometimes it's a $10,000 fix and they probably can't give you an exact quote on how much it's going to cost, but they know the difference between a $10 fix and a $10,000 fix. And frankly, if they don't, they're a terrible home inspector. You should know that it costs $10 to replace a switch and $10,000 to replace a roof. Before we move on to our random question segment, I just wanted to mention that we do have the Rookie Podcast episode 11. We had Rose Buckley on, who is a home inspector. So if you guys want to learn more about home inspecting, go back and listen to episode 11. So Mindy, I'm going to ask you a random question. So since this is the rookie show, we usually really dig into a rookie deal. If you could share with us, just break down one of your first deals that you did a live and flip, just kind of give us the rundown on how that went, what the numbers were like. Oh, these are, boy, we're digging into the archives here. So my very first property was purchased in 1996. It was a condo. Let's see, I paid $49.9 for it. My mortgage payment was $400 a month because I had a 7% interest rate and the HOA fee was $200 a month. It was $200 a month for the first month. And then the second month, they sent a letter that said, hey, we need a new boiler and we don't have anything in reserves. So everybody's HOA fee is now double for the next four years. Oh my God. And I was like, what? That was not in my budget at all. And I bought the house because it was so ugly that it I could get it for a lower price. I say house, I mean condo. It was horribly ugly. I painted every single wall. I replaced the flooring in the kitchen. I replaced the kitchen light, the dishwasher. The whole reason I bought the house, because I bigger pockets wasn't around then and I didn't know about investing. I just wanted to stop wasting my money on rent. So I bought it because I had a dishwasher and the dishwasher was broken when I moved in. Thanks, home inspector. I did not have a good home inspector then. So I painted it. I house hacked it with my brother who was going to school down the street. Only back then it was called having a roommate. It wasn't called house hacking. So he paid you rent to live in one of the rooms? Yes. And then 
I sold it when I got married because my husband had a house and I didn't want to live in the condo anymore. I was tired of paying double HOA fees and they had just stopped being double. I was back down to single HOA fees and I was like, I got to get out of here before they jack those up again. So I moved into the his house. I sold it for $75,000. I ended up paying off all of my like little random debts and entered the marriage. Like we signed the contract while I was on my honeymoon. My dad signed it for me and I came home and sold it. And I said, yeah, I want to do that again. That was a lot of fun making $25,000 just living in a house. It turned out that all of those double HOA fees, all of my mortgage payments, all of everything, it cost me $1,000 a year to live in that condo. So yeah, I don't buy condos anymore. I really don't like condos. I don't like having no control over the HOA fees, but that was a really good investment for me because it propelled me on this path. And look at you thought that it was a bad investment once they jacked up those HOA fees. Like you thought, oh no, like this is not good. It's eating into my budget. I'm spending too much money. And then in the end, it turned out to be a good deal. And it started your real estate investing journey. That first deal is always crucial. It is. It is. I mean, I had kind of a bad experience doing it, but it turned out to be great. All right. So Scott, my question is for you. Now, in addition to the book that we've been talking about for the last hour or so, uh, you're also the author of another book, right? Set for Life. And a lot of times throughout this conversation, we've kind of mentioned that you want to start your real estate career, your home purchasing process by having a strong personal financial position. So I guess what are some boxes that listeners should be checking from a personal financial standpoint before they go into buying that first home? Oh, great question. So I think that, you know, we already talked about the down payment, having the down payment, the closing costs, expected repairs, and then an emergency reserve as kind of that like checklist box of things. So I'll instead answer this question with the framework for thinking about wealth building and financial freedom, generally speaking. So you should understand that there are four levers that you can pull in building wealth. You can spend less money, you can earn more money, you can deploy your accumulated capital and invest it, or you can create assets. And so I think that the journey comes down to where am I today and what are my biggest levers? And most people who are full-time self-employed are going to start with the spending less as going to be the most immediately actionable lever. It's hard to build a business if you're working a full-time job. It's hard to earn a great investment about investing if you have nothing to invest. And it's hard to inflate your income if you're working a salary. So that's where it comes down to. And I think, so I think it's basic 101, where is my money going? Am I tracking it? Am I moving the big levers, the biggest levers being housing, transportation, and my food budget? That's 66% of most Americans' household spending is just in those three categories. And am I making smart choices to keep those fixed costs low over time? And am I disciplined on a day-to-day basis? And from there, that should help you accumulate lots of liquidity and make all of the rest of this journey that much easier, the development of that financial foundation being automatic with that mentality. Great answer, Scott. And you obviously go into your whole framework of being financially smart in your book, Set for Life. So listeners, if you guys haven't checked that one out, that's another good book to add to the reading list. But Scott, many you guys have added a tremendous amount of value to the listeners today. I'm sure they gained a lot from this conversation. But before we wrap up, I just want to give a quick shout out to one of our Ricky rock stars. Now, for those of you that are listening, if you want to be shouted out on the show, join the Real Estate Rookie Facebook group. I think there's like 23,000 people in there last time I checked, which is absolutely insane. So we're pulling folks from that group to give them a shout out on the podcast. 
Today's Ricky Rockstar is Nolan Yamada. So Nolan, he said, I just sold a car that I love and I will be driving a 97 Tacoma in order to lower my DTI one step closer to my first deal. That is absolutely amazing. I love that mindset, Nolan. And, and you guys are, maybe if you're watching the video, you can see Mindy and Scott kind of throwing their hands up in praise right now too. Well, what do you got, Scott? That's right. That's exactly what we just talked about, right? Like that car expense after food, after just control, buying reasonable food from grocery stores, selling your car and making that decision, that is the kind of thing that will propel you forward on your financial journey. That will make everything else easier. That's twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars over a three, five, six year period and not lost depreciation, lower payments, those kinds of things. That's another rental property. So great job, Nolan. That's awesome. I was just going to say, I think that's awesome. One of the questions we ask all of our guests is what is your biggest financial mistake? And fully, what, 65% of people's answer is I bought a car that was too expensive. I bought a brand mm -hmm. new car. So that's great. Good job, Nolan. You can always buy that car back. In cash, downstream, <laughs> after you're rich. And once you get rid of that car payment, you'll never want to go back either. It's a different feeling, I guess, once you have that car paid off and you see what you can actually do with that money instead of letting it sit in a depreciating vehicle. Yep, nothing wrong with a nice car, just an anchor in the first day. Sorry, I, yep. I'm interrupting. <laughs> Thank you guys so much uh, for joining us today. Can you uh, let everyone know a little bit where they can find you, reach out to you, uh, Instagram, Facebook, biggerpockets.com? Yeah, sure. You, yeah, you can find me uh, at bickerpockets.com. You can just uh, search in the search bar, the member search. And then I'm on Instagram at, at Scott underscore trench, much less active on Instagram than both you guys. But there, if you want to look at some old posts, I guess, selling that real hard. And then um, our book, First Time Homebuyer, is available at biggerpockets.com slash FTHB or biggerpockets.com slash homebuyerbook. I am the community manager at Bigger Pockets, so I am all over the forums there. I'm also in the Real Estate Rookie Group, the official Bigger Pockets Facebook group, and the Bigger Pockets Money Group. So if you need to connect with me, you can get me on all of these social medias at Mindy at BP. That's M I N D Y A T B P. But Bigger Pockets is the best way to get in touch with me. You can email me, Mindy at biggerpockets.com. Thank you guys so much for coming on the show. And if you guys uh, took a lot of value from the show, make sure you check out their book. It will be available on March 8th. So if you haven't already, make sure you guys join us on Facebook, the Real Estate Rookie Facebook group. Just search Real Estate Rookie. It should come right up. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast. And today's notes, all of the different things we talked about, articles will link. You can find those at biggerpockets.com forward slash rookie 59. Thank you guys uh, so much again for being on the show. Thank you for having us. We had a great time. We really appreciate it. And thanks for the nice plug. We appreciate that too. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. I enjoyed talking to you both again. I am Ashley at Wealth for Rentals and he's Tony at Tony J. Robinson. And we will see you guys on this Saturday for our next Rookie Reply. Getting started in real estate can be daunting. There's so much to know, obstacles to overcome, lessons to learn, and risks to avoid. It can all be so overwhelming. If you're feeling motivated to invest, but too overwhelmed to take action, here's some advice. Take it one step at a time. 
And here's some good news for you. The Rookie Bootcamp is starting on May 20th, and Tyler and Ashley will be guiding you through each and every step until you're the proud, confident owner of your first investment property. Through eight action-packed weeks, they'll guide you step-by-step through those first questions, decisions, and obstacles that every beginner investor must overcome. So if you're serious about becoming an investor this year, head to biggerpockets.com step and join us in the Rookie Bootcamp. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.